Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We are in the final week now of our annual vision series, or, or what I call basically our yearly family talk, uh, uh, refocusing us as a church, uh, refocusing our gaze upon uh, who we are, uh, why we're here, what do we feel like God's calling us to do, how should we be g- going about that. And uh, I, I just find really every year that when it comes to um, the purpose of the church or the vision of the church, it is amazing, even from a pastoral staff standpoint, how easy it can be to lose the proverbial forest through the trees. To, to, to be just kind of so busy in the ins and outs of, of church-like things while losing sight of how all those things feed into the big picture of why we're here and what we're trying to do. And so this is our yearly family talk. And, and, and this year, the series has been called Reset. That in these unique days, to say the least, that we are in the midst of, we as a church are not waiting to restart, but rather we are working to reset. To remind ourselves that God didn't make a mistake here in 2020. Um, um, He he, he didn't kind of let a global pandemic uh, slip through the cracks in a tumultuous election year, right? Like, and and so while we might not know and might not ever truly know why this is all happening, and we we don't know how long it will last. I mean, we we can't kind of look into the future and say, okay, at this date it's going to be normal again. We're just we're not there. We're not going to be there. We don't know how long this will be. But what we do know is the God who knows all of these things. And he, in his sovereign grace and wisdom, has even ordered them for our good in ways we can't understand, even when it's difficult to even hear that and say it. So because we believe that, we um, are are not um, casting out a new vision um, in, in the sense of uh, a, a new way to do church in these uncertain days, but rather we want to just affirm, uh, clarify, kind of double down on the vision that has always existed for the body of Christ over the past 2,000 years. And if we summed up the mission of the church in the New Testament all throughout church history, I think if you, would, if you were just kind of boil that down, kind of squeeze that sponge, what would come out? I think concisely and clearly, here's the mission. It would be glorifying God by making disciples who know Jesus and make him known. And it is this deep well of assurance for me as a pastor, for I think us as a faith community, that the church's mission doesn't change and will never change based on circumstance or culture or context. Uh, Vision statements might change, but it's different from the vision, right? Vision statements may change. The methods will certainly change as time goes on. Uh, The way each church and each time period carries out that mission will differ. But the global church that is made up of local outposts is bound together by this shared vision to make disciples. And in the final two weeks of this series, last week and then this week, we were kind of unpacking the, the final phrase of that vision statement, making disciples who make him known. 
Last week we saw how the church is called to make him known by, the, by how we live. We were in 1 Peter chapter 2 as um, uh, moving from Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus says, be salt and light. And now this week we're going to be in 1 Peter once again and we're going to unpack the call to make him known by what we say. Last week, how we live. This week, by what we say. So again, staying in 1 Peter, this time will be chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 8 to 18. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Last week, we saw five convictions for the way to make Christ known by the way we live out of 1 Peter 2. This week, we're going to see four convictions for the way to make Christ known by what we say in 1 Peter 3. And number one, pursue unity. Pursue unity. Um, so, so the whole reason Peter wrote down and, and, and wrote this letter to the churches scattered throughout Asia Minor uh, was to encourage them to persevere in the face of persecution and to above all remain unified. It's a common refrain throughout this letter. Um, and just think about the, the state of the church right now, like in specifically Asia Minor, which is primarily a Gentile territory within the Roman Empire. They are uh, this very tiny minority in the midst of a totalitarian-ruled Roman Empire. It's a context where they were marginalized, often maligned of their character, often blame for any problems that existed in the area because it's the Christians' fault because they're not worshiping the Roman gods like everybody else is fine with doing. And so the New Testament church, certainly the ones that Peter is writing to, were always under this really kind of extreme pressure um, to either abandon the faith altogether or just change it in such a way that they would be more accepted by the culture around them. But those were kind of the options, like abandon it or just tweak it so you become more accepted or remain steadfast. And that's what Peter is encouraging them to do. That's why the idea of suffering and suffering for good 
Peter kind of weaves in and out of it. We saw it last week in chapter 2. He kind of comes back to it now in chapter 3. But it's interesting. When you think about persecution in the New Testament, most of the physical persecution came at the hands of Jews. Jews who were physically persecuting uh, Christians. The Roman Empire would eventually get more oppressive and there would be more physical persecution um, of Christians after the first century, after the time of the New Testament being written. But at this point, uh, it was more sporadic in its physical persecution, but by and large, it was the Roman Empire didn't really care how people worshipped, in a sense. Uh, there was even some form of freedom of religion in the Roman Empire. I mean, just think about the Jews themselves. They're under the control of the Roman Empire, but they would allow them to worship in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas in the way that they felt. There was, there was a freedom to do that, in a sense, because it would be all under the watchful eye of the empire. Didn't want things to get too out of control. So Christianity now is this new upstart of a movement that kind of comes out of Judaism, and it's very small, but it's growing. And the persecution that they got from Rome, there was some physical persecution, but by and large, it was one of more ridicule than anything else. Peter uses the word reviling. It could also be translated insulting or berating. And then they would get blamed for whatever went wrong in society because, hey, look at these guys. They, they have an exclusive God. They have one God. They're not worshiping the Roman gods. So the members of these house churches, many, many of them were Gentile, who were newly converted from pagan ways, were now being kind of ridiculed and just maligned of their character and blamed to the point where they were just tempted to say, man, is this, is this worth it? This is hard, man. Like, this is hard trying to persevere through this. Or, or, or can't we just change some things? Maybe Jesus ends some of the Roman gods just to kind of get them off our back. Which is why Peter is saying, listen, all of you, meaning the whole church, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind toward one another, but specifically pursue unity in the mission to neither leave nor return the revival, the revile rhetoric to those who are giving it to you. And then he quotes from King David in Psalm 34, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He basically says, pursue a unified mind in what you don't say. So in Christianity, we, th- we think about all much of what we should say and evangelism is what we should say. And we'll get there, but maybe it begins with, hey, what you don't say. And we talked a little bit about this last week. And, and Peter's just laying it plain to them. Listen, you won't win. You might think now that you need to overcome those in the Roman Empire who are reviling you. But no, no, church, you don't need to defeat the world. You're called to reach the world. And we won't reach them and make known the name of Christ if we're constantly berating them back. Peter is essentially laying it down that no one has ever been argued or berated into the kingdom of God. And this is why it is such a word 
for us as a church today where we stand in our cultural moment. I mean, talk about reset. Here's what we need to affirm and just say to ourselves and one another over and over again, especially now. Grace Church, we're not in a culture war. We're in a spiritual war. We're we're, we're not primarily passionate about defeating other people who might not have the same ideals that we think we have. We're passionate about making known the name of Christ and shining light into the darkness to people who are caught and held captive by sin. And I want to tread lightly here. It's kind of, this is hard to be nuanced in such a kind of a tight time frame. Because I'm not saying that we should be removed from any of the cultural conversations. Um, because we are very much called to be engaged citizens in our nation. And we should advocate for um, certain kind of social or government or systematic uh, systems and health that we think is for the thriving of all people. But we need to remember all the while who the real enemy of the church is. And it's not those who might have a different political leaning than you do. Paul says in Ephesians 6, our enemy is not flesh and blood, but the spiritual powers and principalities of the age. And when the church mixes this up, that's the church that will lose sight of its mission and will dedicate itself to a cultural war while neglecting the far more important spiritual war. And so one thing I want to remember, remind myself, and I would share with you this morning, is brother and sister in Christ, you have more in common with a fellow brother and sister in Christ who will vote the opposite way you will in November than you do with a non-believing political ally. Number one, pursue unity. Number two, second conviction for making Christ known by what we say, um, trust fearlessly. Trust fearlessly. Verse 14 again, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. It's interesting how Peter cuts straight to the core of what is keeping the churches from living out their calling. It's fear. It's fear. And and, and then he equips them with what they need to remember and practice to overcome that fear. But, but fear is this kind of unifying thread for all churches in all times, in all contexts, right? For, for all that we might not be able to directly relate to what these early Christians were experiencing in Asia Minor, probably so much that would be so foreign to us. But fear is something we can resonate with. Because just like in the first century, the number one reason why churches struggle today to make known the name of Christ is fear in doing so. It might not be the same fears on the surface, but when you kind of peel back the layers and peel it back and peel it back, it has that same foundation. It's, it's really it's a fear of loss of something. 
And the reality is that the church is feeling the weight and the pressure of, of, of this moment that we're in, in this year, kind of coming in from all sides and all different directions, and they're just kind of worn out. And, and, you know, I feel like I've been saying this more in the last couple of weeks, so maybe I am being dramatic, but I'm not trying to be dramatic when I say that churches are struggling in this country, and we're seeing it unfold in real time. Many of you are familiar with the Barna Group. Uh, it's probably the most well-known, and I guess, respected religious research firm in the world. Certainly has a prominent voice in our country. And they just came out with a report predicting that one in five churches will close in the United States in the next year. If that's true, that's approximately 60,000 churches in our country that will close in the next 12 months. And even if that's just anywhere in the same zip code and ballpark of what it will be, it is massive. Not to mention the countless others that might find a way to remain open, but still be depleted and divided and a poor witness. Which is why the churches that are just waiting to restart in this time and just try and kind of hold on and just wait until everything gets back to normal and hope it gets back to normal instead of working to reset, they may never get there. They may never get to that restart because it might not come. And while I pray that doesn't happen, I find myself praying for that and for the church in America more than I ever have before in my life. And I don't need to be worried about predicting that or, um, or, or, or not. What I see that being an element of and a manifestation of is this in 1 Peter chapter 3. That the reason most will close is because they have given into a fear. A fear of loss of something that was pervasive throughout their church. And again, that's not foreign to us. We battle fear as well when it comes to carrying out our calling as a church very real fear that, that leads to very real emotions within us. Fear that we will lose credibility on some level. Fear that we might lose out on opportunities in this world if we cling too closely to Christ. It might be a loss of respect. A fear of a loss of relationships. Or you know what's probably, if I'm honest, what's probably the biggest fear I face is a loss of comfort that I too often idolize. I far too often find myself prioritizing my comfort over God's calling on my life. And for many across the world, certainly in areas where the church is closed, has to go underground, there's a fear of a loss of life. So I wonder if I could just slow down and just ask and just give you a moment to just reflect on that. What, what is it that you fear losing in this world as a result of standing for Christ and making His name known? What do we fear collectively as a church that's keeping us from joyfully and boldly carrying out the mission to make disciples who know Jesus and make Him known? Um, author Stacy Roach says, um, fear feeds irrationality. 
She says, quote, when fear seizes you, all your ability to think rationally evaporates. How true is that? Life becomes overwhelming and the promises of God are thrown out the window. So Peter is pressing reset in the minds and the hearts of the church in this passage. And he's putting before them this beautiful picture of gospel truth. He's trying to get the, the, the gospel promises of God that have been thrown out the window. He's trying to get them back in their lap. And he's saying, he's saying, church, who can actually harm you when you are zealous for doing good? It's this rhetorical question to say, God's promises will never be offset by this world's troubles. Let me say that again. God's promises will never be offset or canceled out by this world's troubles. Who can really harm us if God is for us? No one. Who can, what can break us if God's promises to bless us? Nothing. Where could we go that God would not be ever present and sovereign over all things? Nowhere. This is the antidote to fear. This is the way we climb out of feeling paralyzed by what could happen to us in this world or what we could lose. Peter says, In our hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. I feel like this is kind of the New Testament version of that famous Old Testament exhortation in Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. In this series, let us affirm that Grace Church, we will never make Christ known to the world if we fear the world more than we honor Christ in our hearts. Peter doesn't say we won't suffer. He doesn't say things won't be hard. But he says that nothing, no matter how hard, will ever offset God's promises over to us. Cling to that. Trust it fearlessly. That's number two. Number three, speak boldly and gently. Number three, speak boldly and gently. Um, because with that set up, now comes the rest of verse 15, probably the most well-known verse in First Peter. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet... Do it with gentleness and respect. Once we overcome a fear of loss in this world and treasure the Christ as the Lord, we are then prepared to speak. We are prepared and equipped to speak about this hope that anchors our soul to a world that is shrouded in darkness. That, that phrase in verse 15, make a defense, comes from the Greek word apologia, where we get our word apologetics. And one of the um, many losses that we have experienced in the year 2020 uh, was a man named Ravi Zacharias, who I think in certainly um, kind of modern times is the most well-known and fruitful evangelist and apologist in the world. And he defined apologetics as this, quote, connecting the gospel 
with the life of the mind. The organization that is named after him, RZIM, has this mission statement, helping the thinker believe and helping the believer think. And the real mission in casting out the vision is that apologetics is not just for the academy, it's not just for the professors or the theologians or the seminarians or the pastors, it's for the church. Apologetics is for the church. Peter, in saying this, remember back in verse 8, he's prefaced this whole section with all of you, all of you listening, all of you reading, the whole church, When you were questioned, whether it be by someone who is ridicule and reviling you, like those in 1 Peter, or someone in your life just asking, maybe even out of genuine interest about your faith and your convictions and what makes your engine go and what gets you up in the morning, he says, always be prepared to speak. Don't let those opportunities pass you by. Don't neglect the act of proclaiming. It's not just the job of a few, but the job of all believers, of the whole church, to be committed to audibly speaking the gospel in any and every context that we can. That this is how God designs His Word to go out, to go through His church, inspired by His Spirit, by the proclamation of His Word. You, you, you might have be familiar with the phrase of, you know, always share the gospel and, and if necessary, use words. Meaning that, you know, just care about the way you live. And, and, and certainly we care about the way we live. We talked all last week about how our witness and people are going to watch us before they listen to us. But when we get to a point, there's going to be a point where we need to speak. To say to share Christ without words is like saying you should go feed the poor without food. It won't happen. So, so what, what is the aim of apologia? What, what, what's the aim of apologetics? What is the hope we want to proclaim to those who ask? There are lots of topics of conversation um, that, that apologetics kind of ha- finds itself with all these different uh, kind of streams of discussion, but it, they are all streams that flow from one fountain. And what is that fountain? What's the aim of apologetics? What's the hope that we should proclaim? Well, don't just take my word for it. Let's go ahead and let the Bible speak for itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 to 24. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. What is the hope that we proclaim? What is the fountain through which all of apologetics flows out of and back to? Two words. Christ crucified. This is not the message the world wants, but it's the one the world needs. 
The message that mankind cannot make its way to God. But rather, God reveals Himself by His sovereign grace. And He does so through His church and the witness of His church to sinners who can trust that forgiveness is offered to them through the blood shed for them on the cross. Christ crucified. And this, um, uh, along with the empty grave and the victory over that death that Christ then proclaimed, is the hope that anchors the soul. This is the hope that equips the church to, to not fear anything in the world. And this is the hope that should be spoken boldly, yet gently. Don't leave that last phrase off. Peter says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So back to Ravi Zacharias, I think, again, such a gift to the church as an example for us. He once said this, quote, In Christian engagement, the goal is to win the person who is of, the, or of their worldview, not to destroy the person. You could, this afternoon, go watch hours and hours and hours of Ravi Zacharias on YouTube in front of large audiences where there was always a uh, a significant amount of time given to Q&A from the audience to Ravi. And you will never once, I can say confidently, you'll never once find Ravi mock somebody for a question they asked or uh, somebody who challenged a point that he made or somebody who's presenting another worldview. You will never see him Mock, berate, or revile anybody. And compare that to what we so often see today in Christian engagement, especially on social media. Things that are meant to be provocative, right? Or you see headlines, so-and-so destroys this leftist, or so-and-so destroys this Trump supporter. To get the clicks, all provocative, mocking, reviling. So here's a measuring stick for our Christian engagement, whether it be in person or online. If after a conversation, someone's first thought is, I never want to speak to that person again. I don't want to talk to them ever again. That was awful. Regardless of the points being made, we probably did it wrong. It probably wasn't gentle or respectful. But if they walk away from a conversation that you have online or in person saying, you know what, I don't agree with them, but I want to talk to them again. Or I'd be willing to talk to them again about that same issue or another issue. That is a sign of gentleness and respect. And we know we can't control whether they will believe. That is up to God. But we can control our tone and our approach and our pursuit to make Christ known. So let's talk here. Speak boldly and gently. Our series is Reset. This is probably not new to many, if not all of you. But if we reset and we just ask ourselves the question, do some introspection, are you willing to trust God enough to speak boldly and gently about the hope that is within you? I think all too often the local church today often punts on this and relegates all evangelism and outreach to missionaries. That, that, that's what the missionaries do. They, they preach the gospel. That's their job. And on one end, yes and amen. 
We care a lot about missions here at Grace Church. We partner with organizations and individuals who have committed their lives to proclaim the gospel locally and regionally and globally. We have 21 partners that we, that we are called to support in prayer and funding. Over 20% of our budget at Grace Church is money that just goes right back out to support missions to the ends of the earth. But a church that is living out its calling also sees themselves as those called to live on mission. To always have an answer for the hope that is within us. To winsomely and thoughtfully consider who is God calling us to reach and how should we be going about that. Again, we have 21 missions partners that reach the world. But we, as a local church, have hundreds of fellow gospel partners that reach northern New Jersey. At Grace Church, we have roughly 300 adults. We have roughly 150 to 170 children and teens that call Grace Church home, around 450 to 500 total. The population of Bergen County and maybe surrounding towns that really kind of around Bergen County that many of our people also live and work in, easily over one million people. So if you do the math there, 450 over a million, you're looking at 0.0005%. If you want to include other faithful Bible gospel preaching churches in our area, maybe, maybe that gets up to as high as 1%, 2%. Does that seem daunting to you? It seems daunting to me. Like God calls us, this is our mission field, this is where we're called to speak boldly and gently, but the numbers are so outside of our favor, it feels so daunting. How can we reach all of that? Where do we start? It can feel even useless. What are we actually doing here? What's the point? The point is this. Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I remember hearing uh, growing up several times, my dad shared this, this story and this illustration that I went um, online and, and, and found it. I want to read it to you. Hang with me here. Once upon a time, there was a man who used to go to the ocean to do his writing. He had a habit of walking on the beach every morning before he began his work. Early one morning, he was walking along the shore after a big storm had passed and found the vast beach littered with starfish as far as the eye could see, stretching in both directions. Off in the distance, the man noticed a small boy approaching. As the boy walked, he paused every so often, and as he grew closer, the man could see that he was occasionally bending down to pick up an object and throw it into the sea. The boy came closer still, and the man called out, Good morning. May I ask what it is that you are doing? The young boy paused, looked up, and replied, throwing starfish into the ocean. The tide has washed them up onto the beach and they can't return to the sea by themselves, the youth replied. When the sun gets high, they will die unless I throw them back into the water. The man replied, but there must be tens of thousands of starfish on this beach. 
I'm afraid you won't really be able to make much of a difference. The boy bent down, picked up yet another starfish, threw it as far as he could into the ocean, and he turned, smiled, and said, it made a difference to that one. Church, when it comes to fulfilling our calling to make known the name of Christ, the only number that matters is one. It starts with one. I often think these days how 2020 will be a year that future generations will hear and learn about in their history books more than any other year in my lifetime. And I have this picture, if, if, if God is so gracious, of sitting with my great-grandkids who will ask me, what was it like to be alive in 2020? How did you handle it all? How did you make it through? What was life like? I want to say then that in the year 2020, I clung to the promises of Jesus Christ. I want to say that was the year I reset my commitment to carry out His purposes in this world. And I want to say that I played my part to make Him known to a world that was so clearly and desperately broken. I want to tell them, I didn't change the world, but I started with one. And I went all in. Which leads to our final point. Number four, follow faithfully. How to make Christ known, follow faithfully. Peter, in this passage, has just called the church to do some pretty significant things. To not revile a world that is reviling them. To consider it a blessing to suffer for righteousness' sake, if that's God's will for their life. To always have an answer to those questioning their hope. An answer that is bold, yet gentle. And just as the Word of God always does, Peter provides the power through which they can do these things. At that moment that you think, I can't do this, the Word of God always gives you the Word to remind you, you can. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus drew us in. For the joy set before Him, He called us to Himself and made us righteous. And even if those of you watching or listening right now who feel like you never deserved that, or you still don't deserve that, or that you know more than anyone else that you continue to fail Him, and that you can't possibly be loved by God like that. Brother or sister, Jesus is the objective evidence that He does. Even when you don't feel it, you are as loved today as you ever possibly could be in Christ. And He has made you righteous. 
And in Christ, we die to our old selves. We are made alive in our new self. And now we are given the eternal purpose to join with the church body to make disciples who know Jesus and make Him known. And we are the light of the world in so much that we reflect the true light. The light that shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. God reached you with the message and the Spirit worked in you. And now God wants to reach the world with the message as the Spirit works through you. Church, it starts with one. So who's your one? Maybe several names come to mind at first. But who's after time? Maybe you need to take some time and reflect and think about this, but who, who's the first person you think of when God's... When, when, when we say, start with one. Where years from now, by God's grace, they might look back and talk to their great-grandkids and say it was the year 2020 when someone introduced me to Jesus Christ for the first time. Who's your one? This is how we fulfill the mission to not just wait to restart, but in these days to work to reset for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you really across the series, seeing two passages in Ephesians and then two passages in First Peter, how you have just stirred our hearts for your namesake that you have given us what we need by your Spirit to press reset, to clarify, to affirm, to double down on the calling you have put on us, not just as individuals, but as a church, as Grace Church. And so I pray, Lord, that this, would not, this series would not just end with this sermon, but this would be a spark plug to how you are going to move in and through this church in the days and months ahead. And we pray that all along the way, we would be seeking your glory and your glory alone. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.